I would say, you know, remember that food scraps in the garbage are the problem and food scraps making compost is the solution. And it's a solution because compost is nature's fertilizer. It's nature's vitamin. It's making more soil essentially. So it's like, think of it as you either put food scraps in a landfill where they rot and can't decompose properly and are in this like horrible dungeon with all these weird neighbors of like <laughs> computer chips and plastic bottle caps and just, you know, whatever else, you know, just this hellhole of <laughs> the, the other side of our modern life that nobody wants to look at. Like food scraps don't belong there because food scraps have value. They have all these nutrients in them that want to go back into the earth. And so all we have to do is like liberate food scraps to live their best life and become compost and return into soil again to continue the cycle of life. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. If you're currently not a composter yourself or composting by any curbside pickup, don't worry, you're not alone. In fact, 75% of U.S. households currently do not have access to curbside composting, meaning their cities or towns are not providing compost bins and pickups. And given most people don't have the space to compost themselves or worry it may be too much effort, an overwhelming majority of Americans today are not composting at all. And that's not good because as we're going to learn today, composting really matters. It's one of the most important tools in our arsenal for fighting climate change and improving our lives. We throw away a whopping 40% of our food here today in the U.S. Consider that one in four children in this country go hungry. And for the purpose of this episode, all of that food waste could be used instead to make critical, nutrient-rich soil. Instead, we send it to landfills. And at the landfill... It gets mixed in with non-degradable products and a plethora of chemicals instead of being turned into soil, and it contributes to our growing waste crisis. And waste produces methane gas. In fact, a shocking 25% of our methane gas output comes from waste. And methane gas traps heat in our atmosphere at a rate 25 times that of carbon. So yeah, this is a problem. And the solution has been well known and well understood for centuries. Composting. So why then isn't it more widespread? And how do we make it more accessible? Joining me today are three incredible compost, compost commandos. commandos. The first is Lauren Turk, a leader at Fera Zero, who is determined to solve our waste problem and identifies composting as one of, if not the most important tool in doing so. Next, Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, one of the best examples yet of a successful private composting business operating in Orlando, Florida. Charlie also has a great podcast of his own dedicated to all things composting, and we'll link to that in the episode. Please check it out, subscribe, and leave his podcast a great review. Finally, Dr. Lee Reich, who I like to think of as the OG of composting, an avid farm dinner, as he likes to put it, that's bigger than a garden, but smaller than a farm, who has been writing books and teaching courses in composting work and gardening overall for over 50 years. If you ever had any questions about composting, why it's so important, 
and how you can get involved yourself, this is the episode for you. chance yet to watch the renowned documentary on Netflix called Kiss the Ground, you should. If you have, well, then you know the vital role soil plays in protecting this planet. Soil is the lifeblood of our entire food supply. It quite literally keeps us alive, along with everything else on this planet. It also serves as an incredible carbon sink. There are over 2,500 gigatons of carbon stored in soil. A gigaton. Yeah, I had to look that up too. A gigaton is 1 billion metric tons. That's a lot. Let's make that feel a bit more tangible. In 2020, at a global level, we released roughly 36 billion tons of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Actually, a 7% decline from 2019 due to the COVID shutdown. So at that rate, currently our soil is sequestering 70 years worth of carbon emissions at our current peak levels. Thank you, soil. So... Healthy soil is really, really important, yet we've been doing our best to destroy it. You know, it's like, well, what, what really happens when, when soil like blows away, basically? What really happens when it can't store water? What really happens when it doesn't absorb any CO2? Well, on the CO2 front, that, you know, as we know, that means that there's more CO2 hanging out in the air. And... That's not good. On the waterfront, well, it means that of an area that soil, like it's more susceptible, it's more vulnerable to drought, fire, and flood, basically. It's like a disruption of weather patterns. So if that land doesn't have um, water underneath it to keep the plants and everything healthy, then it's more likely that that land will be degraded from drought. It's more likely that that land is really dry. And if a fire comes that it'll get, you know, swept up in that fire. And that if a flood comes that the water can't be absorbed, but it just sits on top. So as it, as it relates to natural disasters, compost is, is relevant there as well. So it's just really, it's really crazy how important it is and what we could accomplish to improve, you know, to, to improve climate catastrophe outcomes, frankly, if we were to really lean into it. That's Lauren, who I'm going to give the superhero name of the Marvelous Soil Maven. Because as a reminder, these are the Compost, Compost Commandos. We have a soil health crisis. Not everybody is aware of it or talking about it, but Lots is happening at a at the legislative level to deal with this. Basically, after World War II, we had all of this extra nitrogen chemical like leftover, and we used that to make fertilizer, synthetic and synthetic ni- nitrogen as a fertilizer, which was a huge part in how we recovered in many ways and and fed lots of people for a long time and, and had a booming agriculture industry. But the problem is we, we used a very economy of scale industrialization mentality. And basically when you, when you put synthetic fertilizers on soil, it's, it doesn't actually add anything back into the soil. The soil 
over time becomes bereft of its nutrients and of its structure. So kind of think of it like, I'll use a more PG example, think of it like giving somebody coffee but never letting them sleep. It's like you can make it for a while. Like you'll stay awake, you know, maybe you'll have some some great insights at work or whatever from your coffee buzz, but you're going to crash eventually. And that's basically what we've done to our soils by over applying for a really long time synthetic fertilizers. What also happens is that the over application of synthetic fertilizers runs off into our waterways when it rains. And this is what produces dead zones in, in the oceans, if you've heard about them, and algae blooms. So there's all this stuff that's out of balance, I and mean, that's being harmed by essentially using chemicals instead of making compost. That's not all the problems post-World War II life brought us. The waste industry also really changed at that time. The era of disposable everything was ushered in with monumental growth of one of Earth's true mortal enemies, single-use plastics. The focus was on sanitation, not the environment, and disposable products led the way. Given that composting and the benefits of it have been around for so long, why do you think we've just been throwing away food waste when we know the science has been sitting there, but you know we've never really embraced it at scale? Yeah, I think you have to look back to the history of the waste industry in this country and like to give you a timeline prior to world war ii you know there were just like done well most of the the material there wasn't plastics or you know nylon these really pretty modern uh, materials and as far as disposal went most people were composting at that time in their backyard there were like dumps that were just like not permitted at that time. They were just like farms or people would even dump into lakes just in the, in the woods. And then uh, fast forward to post-World War II, like World War II is responsible for engineering all these new materials like plastic, nylon parachutes. Uh, I think I'm forgetting some others, but the post-consumer, like the consumer era after World War II is when the waste really got real and it, you know, people started to generate significant amounts of waste and the old disposal system of these, you know, illegal dumps were not working very well. And it was just really polluting the environment, air emissions from the vehicles was getting bad. And that's why the EPA and the Clean Air Act were formed, I think, in 1970-ish. But after that happened, you know, sanitary landfills became the regulation. And, you know, they did a good job at being sanitary. And it was like a public health crisis at that point. But you know, along with that came some waste haulers like waste management who began to consolidate over the next 30 years and buy little waste haulers. Back in like the early part of the 1900s, you know, a waste hauler might just have like one neighborhood, like it was very decentralized and anyone with a truck could be picking up 
garbage or waste. And, and then, you know, the big haulers began to consolidate. That's even happening today. Like waste management just bought advanced disposal, which is another giant hauler. And recycling came into being around 1970. And I won't go into plastics recycling, but basically the whole waste industry has been heading towards this efficiency and maximization of like, like profits and vertical integration. Like our big waste haulers today that handle a lot of the materials, they're traded on Wall Street. So they're, they're kind of looking at like how can we maximize efficiency? And by maximizing efficiency, that means like single stream recycling is a perfect example. We just throw all the recyclables into one bin. We don't have to have like dual hoppers in our truck. We have the automatic arm come out, dump, and we take it to the nearest centralized recycling facility. You know, that's why community composting is awesome because it's very decentralized. You might have like LA compost in Los Angeles might have a bunch of composting hubs and sites around the city. And, you know, for a city like LA or LA County, it's a giant region. It would just be like ridiculous to, you know, be hauling food waste uh, across the county and it would kind of lose the environmental benefit of, of doing that. And that was Charlie, also known around here as Dr. O. In all my time doing these podcasts, World War II always seems to be an interesting inflection point in our history. You might recall this was also the time period where once we mastered monoculture farming and built a massive wheat abundance, our government quite literally made up a food pyramid out of economic need, not nutrition or science, with wheat occupying the base and recommending we eat it six to ten times a day. Hello, diabetes. And this is still taught to kids today. It's insane. We were so focused on economic growth and moving Americans into the middle class. And by and large, we did a pretty damn good job of that. But we had no idea the problems all these industrial systems designed for pure scale and efficiency would lead to. Now we're all paying the price. And especially marginalized lower income people who never got to benefit really much at all from the very system causing all these problems that they have to pay for. Okay, that's a rabbit hole frustration, so I'm going to get back to composting. So we've established that we have a pretty bad and real soil health crisis. Now, we also have a waste crisis. We produce nearly 250 million tons of waste every year here in the U.S. That works out to 1,700 pounds per person. That is far and away more than any other country in the world. American consumerism at its finest. And a big chunk of that is food waste. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, we throw 40% of our food away. We spend $218 billion in resources, time, labor, transportation, disposal of the food we're throwing away. We just toss it to landfills. To me, that that's, I, mean, I find that totally repulsive. I find the whole idea of landfills to be really disrespectful to this, and I, I truly mean this, disrespectful to the soil because the soil is basically a thin skin over the earth that supports, you know, much of the life here. And, and to just, you know, 
it's not even landfills, say, from 200 years ago that was just, they, you know, if they had them then, they would just put organic matter in and cover it up, and it would it sort of, you know, putrefy, but eventually it would become some organic material, a changed organic material. But now, you know, they line it with, with uh, something so nothing leaches out, <clears throat> and then all the garbage comes in, in plastic bags, and then it's filled and lined again. I mean, it's, it's really just like a... It's a storage place. It's like storing nuclear waste. It's just taking up space of, of land, which is a great resource. It's something we, we have for free. And that's Dr. Lee, also known as the Farndener. Well, he sort of made our superhero naming process quite easy, given he gave himself that name. So we have a soil crisis, and we have a waste crisis. If only there was a magic elixir that could help solve both of these. Composting. Compost is magic. Food scraps and garbage is hell. This is the easiest magic trick you'll ever perform. For many, the idea of composting sounds hard, laborious, and kind of dirty. Now, yeah, you can get dirty, but there's actually some really interesting studies that show any form of backyard gardening, including composting, is really, really good for your mental health. Healthy soil has this rejuvenating quality for all life forms, from microbes to people. But it's actually not all that hard or laborious either. Quite the opposite. Well, I think it's partially because people who write about it sometimes make it sound more complicated than it is. Uh, you know, just I think on the one hand, humans uh, seem to have this desire to complicate things that needn't be. And also, and then other people could be put off by that. You know, a good example is, and I, this is probably a, a touchy subject with some people, not necessarily with you, but who would hear, you know, compost tea. So people like going through this, all this machinations about, you know, how to make compost tea and you spread it on the ground. I mean, you just make compost, you put it on the ground. It's simple. You know, it's, it's I guess people for some reason think it's more complicated than it is. And if it was conveyed, so whenever I give a workshop, I say it will become compost no matter what you do. Just get a bin so it doesn't look like a garbage pile. Do it and you get compost. And but, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you got to balance out the carbon and the nut or the you know the browns and the greens and then people wonder well how much do i have to do you know if you have extra one or the other it's it's not gonna it'll still become compost and if you get interested in it because i think it's a fascinating process you know if you get interested you just pay attention to what you did maybe you monitor with a thermometer and then and then you change it a little each time and 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 it's 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 fascinating it's like having this pet that you're just feeding and it's always going to be healthy and happy but but you can change it a little many folks also struggle to identify exactly what they can compost versus not compost but we overthink this as well nearly all organic waste is compostable sure different things compost at different rates Fatty substances like oil or grease can take much longer and need sometimes certain composting parameters, and you should avoid any chemical irritants or additives. But for the most part, anything you can eat can turn back into incredibly healthy soil instead of going to a landfill. You know, I, I focus more on, you know, small farms and home gardens and, and you know, just say, teaching people to, that they can compost basically all their, any organic waste, basically. You know, I'm always, it makes me sort of laugh when, even from extension publications, I read this, where uh, they'll say, well, you know, when you put stuff in the compost, if you have something that's diseased or has insects on it, you know, some garden plant, 
you know, you know, steal it in a plastic bag and throw it out. And I tell people that's like, I mean, I, I for, for ever since I started composting, there's nothing I will not put in my compost. That's one thing. So just empirically, that, that has worked. And the other thing is that if you look at any part of a plant, unless it's been doused with an enormous amount of pesticides, there's going to be something on it that, that mm-hmm. some pest or some insect that you didn't want or some disease speck somewhere, you just put it all in the compost. And, you know, and I, I guess that's another thing that makes people nervous. You know, can I, you know, because a lot of times people send me questions and they'll say, well, can I compost this? What should I do with this? So, yeah. And there are tons of benefits. We've already outlined many of them, ranging from eliminating waste to producing healthy soil to our own mental health. It even helps mitigate soil erosion another big problem we have. Compost not only offers nutrients, but compost acts as this helper to like get the soil back into shape. Like think of it as like a personal trainer for soil. Soil is alive and soil has a structure. And when that structure and shape is healthy, that's what actually allows that soil to store carbon, to store water, And that's really relevant because soil that can absorb water when it rains, that's what builds our water table, right? And when you're in periods of drought or, you know, just in between rains, plants and such need to be able to pull from the reserves in the soil to actually, you know, have enough water access. And so basically, if you have soil that is, has lost its structure, and doesn't have any nutrients in it, it's essentially dead and it blows away or gets washed away when it rains. And this is what we call erosion. And so right now we're actually losing like billions and billions of tons of soil every year that just blows away with the wind or gets washed away with the rain. And a terrible fact is that we're actually losing more soil than during the Dust Bowl era by a factor of two. So twice as much soil is is eroding right now than during the Dust Bowl. And, you know, maybe you've seen pictures of like, you know, just like dusty areas and all this stuff blowing around. Like that's what's happening right now. Scientists estimate that here in the U.S., we're losing soil at a rate 10 times faster than we're able to replenish it. This is going to dramatically hurt our ability to grow and produce food in the coming decades. Toss in more droughts and heat waves on top of that, and we're back to that soil crisis Lauren has been talking about. And while there are important innovations happening, such as vertical farming, that can help shift how we produce some of our crops, that is far from a silver bullet solution. It has its own limitations and challenges ahead. We tackled some of that in a previous episode with Bowery Farming. So if composting is such a great solution to these really large problems, why isn't it more widespread? A lot of people think of composting as if I don't have a yard, I don't have space. And, you know, we know in this country, a majority of people don't have yards. They don't have personal outdoor space. That's a larger issue that has mental health challenges and a number Mm -hmm. of other things. And it's only getting worse because of the income gap in this country is getting wider and wider, not, not not narrower. But because most people don't have yards and outdoor space, they think I I can't compost. Uh, So they kind of, you know, what can, what can I do? This is for people with yards and, and lawnmowers and all the, you know, what, what, like the white picket fence. Like a lot of people think of that, that house is where you can compost. Mm-hmm. So how do we debunk that and how do we kind of change it? And what can people do that maybe only have a, 
outdoor patio or they they have a you know maybe a patio on a, the seventh floor of an apartment building or they're in a you know dense urban area how do we get composting to those people right that is literally the problem i and my colleagues at fair zero are working to solve it's really frustrating that like 75% of american households don't have any curbside organics collection so that's like from the city I don't think that number is going to budge very quickly. And to fill in the gaps then, as you're saying, like a lot of people live in apartment buildings who don't have yards, et cetera. Okay, what do we do? I mean, in order to address that, we need to have more community compost organizations and efforts. And we need to have more green spaces that are hyper local, that are, you know, within walking distance to people's homes so that if you want to compost, it's not a big deal for you to do so, that, that there's a garden that is nearby that you can bring your food scraps to, or there's like a micro hauler, they call it, little collection service. There's lots of kind of cool organizations in Detroit, in Portland, in the Bay, in Brooklyn, in Chicago. They're popping up all over the place of folks who are essentially a community initiative or nonprofit who declare a space, a green space and composting space, and then get people to sign up to either have their compost collected or to drop it off at that location. And then you keep your nutrients local and you're, you're creating soil that you can then use. And that to me is super exciting because it's all about community and it's all about co-benefits. And you mentioned earlier in this conversation that you know access to green space is intersectional with environmental justice and, and mental health, right? And so we need to advocate to have more green spaces in, in every neighborhood. And as we do that, it's really obvious to me that we ought to have not only places to compost, but places to have gardens, you know, urban gardens, if, if there's people who want to grow their own food as well. So what we're doing at Farah is we're launching an app. Well, we already launched an app last year, but we're sort of like sprucing it up to make a really public version that's coming out July 16th. And essentially, it's, it's an app where you can find all of the ways and places that you can compost in your neighborhood and we also track your impact so every time that you bring food scraps to be composted there's a positive environmental footprint of that that we keep track of and then and then like celebrate for you in an impact stat dashboard so we're really excited about it we did our pilot in los angeles last year and los angeles is a great example of where things are really popping when it comes to compost. There's this amazing nonprofit called LA Compost, and they've been, they've been declaring compost spaces for years. And they have two kind of formats. One is they, they, they put these spaces at like a school or at a community garden, and that's really great, but there's a limit to it because only so many people can belong to their locations due to volume of how much, you know, how much compost a particular space can collect. And so to make up for that and to, well, to open it up to more people, LA Compost started collecting food scraps at farmer's markets. 
which I, th which I think is really brilliant. And what I noticed was they weren't keeping track of like how much they were collecting and who was coming and how much people were bringing and all of that stuff. And, and I, I looked at that and I was like, you know, there's a missed opportunity here because I think if people knew the impact they were having on the planet and on their city by this simple act of bringing their food scraps to LA compost while they shop instead of putting it in the garbage can, like I think more people would do it. And so, you know, I built this very simple app to essentially track impact, right? Not only for for people, but for LA Compost. And it turns out it was very popular. People got really excited about their impact and participation increased by 48% in just six months. And this, mind you, was during the pandemic. <laughs> so it's like, talk about incredible. And uh, and so that was really exciting. And, and, and so then we were like, okay, I think we're onto something here. And then basically just friends of mine connected me with some other compost organizations and regenerative farms in Hawaii who also want to use FARA to track the impact of composting. And so we're just expanding. And we realized that it would be really valuable to people if there was an app where they could just find how and where and why to compost and be able to track the impact of their composting. And so that's what we're doing. We could think of composting across three different layers. Number one, the personal or backyard composting, which is great and widely encouraged, but of course has accessibility and scalability limitations. Still, we need more of this. Number two, community or co-op composting. This is along the lines of what Lauren mentioned, where we need to create more community green spaces and make composting a big part of them, allowing folks to come in to both contribute organic scraps and utilize the healthy soil and gardens. And number three, large-scale city or neighborhood-wide composting. This includes both city-run public programs. You might have a city-wide curbside program in your city. Also, private enterprises such as Charlie's, O-Town Compost, and future public-private partnerships. This usually involves some form of curbside pickup. In discussing composting with all three of these experts, it dawned on me that it felt obvious that composting can pay for itself. After all, it reduces waste, which reduces costs, and it can be turned into healthy soil, which can be sold to farmers and growers. So why aren't more cities embracing this if this critical environmental endeavor can actually pay for itself? Now, why isn't that happening? You are right, James, that it should pay for itself over time. And part of what is really exciting to me is like what Farrah Zero is, you know, Farrah Zero is collecting all these um, stats on how much food scraps we're collecting, which is like how much we're, how much we're diverting from landfills. And that's really important for solving this problem with cities because when we have that number of this many tons of, so I'll just use the LA compost example, we've collected 150 tons of food scraps. And that means that the city of LA has not paid a tipping fee, which is the it's a fee that you pay by weight to dump a garbage can's load into a landfill. So we've saved the city of LA the fee of 150 tons of food scraps. So it's, it's indisputable that they are saving money from this. Now, if they were to spin up their own collection service, 
they'd have to pay people they you know to to do the collection da 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 it would still save them money however the reason this hasn't happened and this gets really political and regulatory environments become very relevant basically there's a lot of red tape around constructing an industrial facility it has to be a certain distance outside of the city it takes like 5 to 7 years to get the permitting and it's like many many millions of dollars to construct it in time and so unfortunately what we've seen is that the the state of California has really progressive goals around waste diversion i think it's like 95% goal of diverting waste by 2050 but in a city like LA well basically the there's these franchise contracts with waste haulers which means only certain haulers are allowed legally to go collect um garbage or recycling or compost if they were to choose so that narrows down the 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 decision making power to just a couple of people and so those couple of people get to decide whether it makes more sense for them in their business based on profit to to start a composting service and basically because it's millions of dollars and it's 5 to 7 years of permitting to to spin up a a composting um program they have effectively decided to pay the fines for not meeting the diversion goals stated by the state of California because they're cheaper and easier than it is to change things so that's why i when i looked at this i was like well i'm going to take matters into my own hands and do what i can do and really support what i'm seeing that is working and i want to prove just how amazing community compost organizations like la compost are by being armed with data and telling stories with that data because then i can turn around and talk with different decision makers and stakeholders and be like there's no reason for you not to support more hyper local community centered composting because there's all of these co-benefits of green spaces and communities people are keeping their food scraps and waste streams local with compost it's saving you money people are coming together everybody's happy like it's a no brainer basically and then the second thing that i want to address from your question is like couldn't cities sell the compost that they make to farms well a good place to look for how that works would be the city of san francisco which is maybe one of the most successful citywide composting programs in the country and if you were to talk to farmers in the area they would tell you that they don't really want to buy the quote unquote compost from the city of san francisco and that has to do with contamination and this is really a problem for the design of curbside collection because as soon as you put a bin outside of an apartment complex or outside of a household that bin is not accounted for anything that goes into that bin is anonymized and so there's basically like no accountability for what goes into that bin and that means that there's high levels there there could be high levels of contamination going into a composting facility which means that what's coming out of it might not be as good for soil as we would hope and sometimes you know you could picture that being like a drunk person putting a beer can in there or somebody who doesn't know it's a compost bin putting cat litter in there those things are part of the 
problem, but also as part of the problem are like the the materials substances in a lot of our like <laughs> in a lot of the things we interact with on a um, daily basis. So like pesticides, chemicals, even even materials that are quote unquote compostable. Most of them have what are called for short PFAs in them which are called, like, people call them forever chemicals because they're essentially chemicals that allow for the material to stay stable, but they're really not things that you want in your compost because they're not natural and they're not good for you and, you know, that, that goes into the plants and it's just, it's, it's just more bad stuff. So, contamination. Which brings us back to Charlie. Oh, sorry, Dr. O. If composting can be revenue positive and there's too much red tape and legacy bureaucracy for many cities to tackle this, well, this seems ripe for private enterprise. Charlie's business is one such example, a for-profit composting service that currently serves the Orlando area. As Dr. O explains, this was an easy business to bootstrapping it off the ground in a lean way. As he grew wider and moved into the commercial end of organic waste, that's when challenges showed up and nothing he couldn't solve. Just from the very origin, it's a very easy business to like bootstrap. You know, all it takes is a vehicle or even a bicycle, depending on your community. And, you know, you can just buy a couple of five gallon buckets and uh, swap them out for neighbors. And, uh, you know, even, af even after our like fifth subscriber, I would say we were like, I personally didn't hire someone until maybe a year into the business when we already had, you know, 120 subscribers. And I felt like I needed a driver to come in and start doing the routes so I could focus on growing the business. But it is profitable, not a, at the beginning, it is profitable, but not like you're not raking in the dough. Mm -hmm. And as now we're kind of at uh, a, a crux where we're looking at taking on more commercial clients because the residential side is very easy. It's, you know, the average subscriber of ours generates maybe 11 pounds of food scraps per week. You could even do that in your backyard compost pile sometimes. But the commercial side are the restaurants, the institutions like universities cafes, like the heavier food waste generators. And I wouldn't recommend that to other community composters to just go after them unless you your composting process is set up for that and, and your vehicles, like your collection is set up for that. His solution is to be truly vertically integrated from collection through composting through distribution of soil. Unfortunately, here in Orlando, there were no other composting sites around town, like the infrastructure wasn't there. So I could just focus on the collection side and haul it to the composting site, then wipe my hands and be done with it. But, you know, we're, I guess you'd say we're vertically integrated where we do the processing as well as the comp, the, the collection. Is there an advantage to that in the sense that A, you have more control to make sure the composting is done right, and B, you can then sell that soil? Yeah, exactly. We do have more control and, you know, we 
are able to communicate directly to our clients if there is contamination because you know traditionally if you're the composting if you're only on the composting site processing side you wouldn't really have any control getting in contamination from the collector but also we can you know refine our product and you know, really put the compost in O-Town compost and, and tell the, the whole story. I just, I, I think it's two separate businesses though. And I highly recommend to community composters to like, make sure that the infrastructure is there before you start uh, picking up food scraps. That vertical integration allows you to control for issues along the way. One of the big ones at composting is contamination, essentially when non-compostable material gets mixed in with organic matter. This can be expensive and costly to remove once scraps arrive at a larger industrial composting center, which is why Charlie thinks being vertically integrated is so important. By having a relationship with his customers directly, he can educate them on what it means to properly compost. And he can take measures with commercial folks as well such as selling them biodegradable gloves, which are the main culprits for contamination on the commercial end of things. I would say the residential customers is completely different from commercial customers. The people who subscribe for our service, their, their families, their households, you know, they're the type of people who have an idea and, you know, they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't care. So we see like less than 1% contamination on the residential side. When we do see contamination, it's usually, well, like, I guess it's usually someone else in the household that hasn't been informed of what the bucket is there for. But when we drop off our buckets, a new subscriber subscribes, we drop off their bucket. We also include like a little postcard size infographic with the yeses and nos. The commercial side, that's where the contamination is really mm. uh, completely different. We still manage to keep our commercial contamination, you know, around one to two percent by volume. Obviously, like it's all it's all plastic, so you can't measure contamination by weight. It's very lightweight. So, I think. I just did a training like a couple weekends ago for a couple restaurants I, and I, I try to do these trainings periodically to the kitchen staff. Probably the biggest contaminant we see are the plastic food prep gloves, which we actually sell compostable food, food prep gloves from EcoSafe. They're a compostable bag manufacturer. So that's one way we're we're trying to nip it in the bud on the commercial side the other way to nip it in the bud is this university that just uh signed on we actually have a ten dollar a week contamination penalty and that really isn't a significant amount of money but that's kind of enough money if we have to spend an extra 15 minutes picking out a ton of contamination and we're not going to ding them unless it's like egregious, but this is just kind of like a incentive to keep the education going. So they're just not, you know, thinking like that when they see the invoice at the end of the month, they're like paying attention. Charlie has shown this model can work. 
We can create successful local composting operations that can both make money and work to address our soil and waste crises. Lauren has been eyeing to do some of the same. She's currently expanding the work with her team at Ferris Zero right now down in Hawaii. But she also sees plenty of opportunity to take both the private enterprise and community green space models to many other markets. There are a couple of other things worth flagging as well that can help make composting as core to our lives as single-use plastics have been for decades. For one, we got to clean up the framework of organic and regenerative farming. Like I find it difficult to navigate between the two and I study these things and talk to experts. Imagine what it's like for the average consumer. We're still classifying food as organic from what I see as legacy standards. And regenerative agriculture, which is really where we need to be, is sort of sitting out there on the fringes with no real mainstream communication strategy. This actually came up in our episode earlier this year with an executive from the Organic Center. I actually look at composting as sort of symbolic of this difference. Organic farming mostly centers around limiting the use of pesticides and additives. But it doesn't go far enough in dictating key factors such as how you are using recycling water and soil health. For example, as an organic farmer, you can augment your soil with additive nitrogen derived from manure sourced from factory farm livestock facilities. Those, of course, being the most unorganic catastrophe we have in our food production system. This is just one example of the sort of loopholes that exist in our organic standards today. So we can think of regenerative farming as prioritizing a circular methodology where we're putting back in exactly what we take out. And there's no need to augment it with extra water, organic approved pesticides, or livestock manure. What's one way to do this? Composting. To me, you know, organic gardening used to be, it was almost like just don't spray pesticides or don't spray synthetic pesticides. And then, but you know, now I've sort of refined what I consider to be organic gardening. And it's not always in sync with, you know, the true or not true, but the legal or others definitions of organic gardening. I mean, to me, organic gardening, first of all, the organic in organic gardening is organic matter, which is carbon compounds. And this to me is fundamental. And this, this gets back to compost because carbon is, you know, I mean, a compost is uh, basically carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen with minerals in it. So, so one thing is I think organic is, that's an important component. But then, you know, over the years, more and more I really think the environmental component is important, that you don't want to upset the environment or you want to minimally upset it, because anytime you, you change a landscape, whether it's for a farm or a garden, you're changed, you know, it's not a natural landscape. If it was a natural landscape, you, there wouldn't necessarily be food plants, say, growing in it. So that's another thing. And then one thing more in the last decade or more that I've been much more interested in is, and this relates to regenerative, and I don't, I don't, I don't really separate them out that much because I think it's just one whole picture, and, and maybe there's a better term that's needed. But the regenerative, you know, is just well, one of the, the other component that's really important to me is sustainability because I think a lot of organic farming, especially and organic gardening, it's not really sustainable in the sense that you know it's a cycle that can keep going on and on. It, basically, you know, if you're mining some rock mineral in some place, and this is what's needed according to you to 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 sustain this garden here, that's that's not 
that to me isn't regenerative. And the nice, the beauty of, of the natural system is that soils will regenerate themselves generally, not maybe not every type of soil, but most soils left to their own devices will regenerate themselves. So this is something even on my scale of a farm then I try and do as sustainable as possible. And, and this would be, I guess this is what regenerative means. So, yeah, so I think, so I think the components are, you know, organic matter, minimal disruption of the environment and, and sustainability. I think sustain, you know, a lot of people and farms and, and gardens, organic farms and gardens, they call it organic, but then, you know, they're buying just big bags, say, of fertilizer, but it's organic fertilizers. That's yeah, exactly. Organic. There's a lot of loopholes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you're buying organic fertilizer, that's coming from somewhere else and you got to bring adherence and taking something from, you know, for this transport, but it's also you're taking something from the soil and something has to be added there. So it really doesn't make sense to me. Regenerative agriculture needs a communication upgrade. And one key suggestion from Lauren is doing a better job of mapping our soil health to the larger benefits and creating the right incentives. There's a lot that's going to go into converting. And I have a bunch of dear friends in the space um, of regenerative ag and of like mapping out basically soil health, mapping soil health and its benefits and, and creating incentives around having farmers improve soil health as they farm, as opposed to doing the opposite. Like just basically nobody's been paying attention to this at all until recently. And so now it's like game on, you're totally on, on point there. It's interesting because like synthetic N, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer is applied in a very different way than compost would be though you utilizing a compost tea is a way to kind of make it a similar application process but it's like you know there's like training that goes into it it's like we're going to be asking people to adopt a new behavior you know buy a different thing we have to like get the cost to be the same and like synthetic fertilizer is heavily subsidized right and so there's all sorts of things between here and there however in the medium or near term you have things like in california the state of california passed a law I don't remember the, the, the name of the law. It's not 1383. It's a different one. But basically, they're like, okay, we are going to state that we have to use compost to regenerate fire-scarred lands. It's not the only thing that they, they're not mandated to only use compost, but they are mandated to use compost to regenerate fire-scarred lands. And we have more than 4 million acres of fire-scarred lands in California from last year alone. It's like we literally couldn't make enough compost to service these lands. So it's like the demand for compost is, in my opinion, indisputable. We also need public-private collaboration. We need distributed composting sites and green space to make them accessible and limit the transportation needed to haul around food scraps and composted soil. My vision for for Orange County, Florida, or Orlando, is to make sure we we have decentralized composting sites, so we're not hauling all across the county, and we're you know not driving like a significant distance to tip our food waste. But you know. These community composting sites are usually under the threshold of needing to get permitted. So there is a benefit of having a more like centralized, large composting site. And 
my goal is to site that composting site on the Orange County landfill. It's already dead space essentially. And the, you know, trucks already come in there all the time. It already smells like methane, which is a big factor if you have a composting site is odor complaints. So, I mean, I think, I think a kind of dual approach between community composting and the decentralized method, but also making sure that it's not universally everyone has access because there's inevitably going to be those people who don't care, but you want to make it an opt-in program for the city's residents and commercial businesses. Well, actually commercial is a different uh, beast entirely, but you want to make it opt-in for commercial, for the residents. So anyone who, you know, wants a composting bin would be, you know, it would be very easy for them. It would be a utility. And I haven't even mentioned the other side of what Portland, Oregon does is they have a pay as you throw trash system. So you're essentially, your trash is billed based on a variable rate, based on the volume of your container. So someone with a tiny container is only paying $20 a month. Someone with a 96 gallon a hog is paying like, you know, 60 bucks a month. So that incentivizes people to use their composting and recycling bins and divert waste from the landfill. Inevitably, you're going to get people who just don't care about composting or recycling. And they're going to like contaminate those bins with trash, use them as, you know, additional trash cans. You know, I would say we need to take away their bins and bill them more for their trash because essentially it's costly to send that to the landfill and stuff. And that brings us to our last suggestion, moving always to a variable cost model. Now, many cities are already deploying this with mixed results, but the intention is right and we just need to fine tune the systems. Economic incentives do wonders. If you want people to reduce their waste, well, make throwing it away more expensive. That can come in the form of making trash bins smaller and compost bins larger or putting sensors in trash bins to measure weight. If you go over a certain amount, you pay for it. And if you are paying a flat rate for composting services such as O-Town while paying a variable rate for waste, well, guess what? People will start to cut down on that 40% of food going to the landfills you know, a dollar for every pound of food scraps. You know what I mean? Or we'll pay you 50 cents for every pound of food scraps. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that would ever be possible because of just the cost of collection. Even if you have like a highly dense route, you know, a community of a hundred people and you're literally driving like 10 feet from bin to bin to do collection. Unfortunately, just compost as a product is, you know, not as highly valued as I believe it should be. And that might have to, that might relate to the fact a lot of farms prefer to use art, you know, artificial fertilizer and, and synthetic fertilizer. So. Well, I guess one, one way to that, and this is to your point on public private partnerships and the value of that, right. Is if, 
if you're in a community that does have a variable waste cost, right? And so you are paying for your trash to be picked up and you're paying on a variable level, not a fixed level, no matter what, how much trash you produce. Well, then if you are, you know, let's say paying someone like O-Town Compost and subscriber to reduce your food scraps, you're also reducing your costs of trash pickup. So in a way then, if you have variable waste costs, then a private composter actually is helping you reduce yeah. your, your 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 monthly costs. Exactly, and I hope the city of Orlando is listening right now because <laughs> you know their contract expires in a couple of years. And believe me, it's not easy uh, going from a fixed trash collection system to a variable. I've heard it's a nightmare for like the director of solid waste or the DPW guys, but you know, it's just like, it's the way to go. Like any economist will tell you there needs to be incentives in place. That's all for this episode. Big thanks to Lauren, Dr. Lee and Charlie for the work they do and for contributing to this episode. Oh, I'm sorry. Big thanks to the marvelous soil maven, the farm dinner and Dr. O. I seriously hope they take on these alter egos. I've actually already convinced Dr. Lee. Okay, I'm just using the name he gave himself, but it's too good to pass up. Get out there and start composting. We've included some videos to help you get started in the podcast notes if you want to try on your own. If you can't, find out if your local city or neighborhood has a service or community compost center. If they don't, maybe start one. Take a look at Ferra Zero for some inspiration on how to build community composting, and O-Town if you really want to get ambitious and start your own compost business. We'll link to both in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, thank you for supporting Animalia and all the wonderful life on this podcast.